variance, or luck in small samples, is what's most annoying and most beautiful about poker. It ensures that everyone, even the most talented players, will often lose. But it also means that everyone, even the worst players, will sometimes win. Variance gives everyone a chance, at least in the short term, and makes it possible to play poker for a living. But it can also be very dark for players of all types. Welcome to Third Man Walking. So what is variance? Here's an example. Just 15 players remain in the 2010 World Series of Poker main event. The main event title is the most coveted in all of poker. It's like the Super Bowl, except that anyone, regardless of ability, can bring $10,000 to Las Vegas and play. In 2010, over 7,000 people do just that, and first place is nearly $9 million, plus sponsorships and fame. Jonathan Duhamel a 22-year-old Quebecois with about $100,000 in career tournament winnings to this point, holds pocket jacks and raises to 575,000 chips. Matt Affleck, a recent University of Washington graduate also in his early 20s, has pocket aces and raises to 1,550,000. Duhamel then raises again to almost 4 million. Duhamel and Affleck have the two big stacks at the table, so it's already clear this could be an enormous pot. But before we continue, let's pause to appreciate how young these guys are. The summer after I finished college, I lived in a two-bedroom apartment with two other guys, one whose name I can't recall, and I biked to my job at a record store. I also got paid six cents a word to write for an internet database. I rode a Greyhound to visit my girlfriend who lived an hour away. My life back then was small. I can't imagine myself at 22 playing poker for millions of dollars, but that's exactly what Duhamel and Affleck were doing. Anyway, back to the action. Duhamel has jacks and raises. Affleck has aces and re-raises. Duhamel raises yet again to about 4 million chips. And now Affleck just calls, giving room for Duhamel to continue betting after the flop. The flop comes 10-9-7 rainbow, which means that there's no flush draw available. Duhamel still has an overpair and can now also win with an 8, which would give him a straight. But Affleck is still way ahead. Duhamel now checks, and Affleck bets 5 million. Duhamel calls. The turn is a queen. Duhamel checks again, and Affleck moves all in for 11.6 million. Duhamel thinks for a while and calls. There's one card to come, and Duhamel can win only with an 8, a king, which would also now give him a straight, or a jack. So Affleck is about a 4-1 to one favorite. He will later calculate this pot is worth about 3.3 million real-life dollars in value in this tournament. Now, I don't critique other players' strategy very frequently on this podcast because there are many people who do that better than I could, and because most players you'll see on TV, certainly including these two guys, are better and more accomplished than I am. But we'll briefly make an exception here, since almost no one was all that great at poker in 2010. Affleck played this hand far better than Duhamel did. To see why, let's start from the top. Duhamel raises with pocket jacks, as he should. Affleck re-raises with the best hand in poker, which obviously seems fine. 
but now Duhamel raises again. This is perhaps an attempt to bully Affleck, since Duhamel has the biggest stack at the table late in the main event. It's easy to understand why Duhamel might want to put Affleck in a tough spot. And to be fair, many pros played much more wildly before the flop in 2010 than they do today. But by putting in this many chips with pocket jacks, rather than, say, a hand like ace-five suited, Duhamel effectively turns a very good hand into a bluff. Affleck just calls, which seems good. He keeps weaker hands in Duhamel's range, and with pocket aces specifically, doesn't have to worry much about what will happen on the flop. Now the flop comes 10-9-7, and Duhamel checks. I guess this is fine, it's actually hard to say what he should do, since he shouldn't have pocket jacks when he plays the hand this way before the flop. Affleck bets, correctly figuring that he's unlikely to be behind when Duhamel plays the hand this way, and Duhamel calls, which again might be fine, but you'd prefer not to be in this situation playing an enormous pot with a one-pair hand that might or might not be best. The next card is a queen, and Duhamel checks, which seems like the right play. Now Affleck moves all in, which is a little risky, but he's got aces, he's already gotten Duhamel to put in 9 million chips, and he's only got 11 million left. Now it comes back to Duhamel. Again, he has pocket jacks on a board of 10, 9, 7, queen. It's actually not easy for Duhamel to be ahead here, since he's losing to aces, kings, queens, tens, and even weird hands like king-jack suited or ace-queen, with which Affleck went bananas before the flop and on the flop. For Duhamel, jack seems like an especially bad hand to call with. If we're trying to find bluffs Affleck could have, ace-jack suited might make sense, assuming Affleck would re-raise and call another raise with that hand. But now it's hard for Affleck to have ace-jack when Duhamel has two of the jacks. Affleck has put Duhamel in a really annoying spot, since he almost certainly does have outs, but he's not getting a very good price. For Duhamel, this should probably be a frustrating fold, followed by a couple of minutes of scowling and staring off into the distance while you think about what a dumb spot you just put yourself in. Anyway, Duhamel calls, the chips are in the middle, and there's one card left. Even if you haven't seen this hand, you probably know where this is headed. The river is an 8, giving Duhamel a straight. Affleck's eyes bulge cartoonishly, and he throws a water bottle in frustration as he leaves the tournament area. Duhamel turns his head so half his face is hidden by his hoodie and smiles in disbelief. Duhamel goes on to win the tournament and $9 million. Since 2010, Duhamel has been a semi-regular presence on the high roller scene, playing some of the biggest tournaments in the world and performing fairly well in them. He won the prestigious Big One for One Drop tournament in 2015 for almost $4 million and the high roller at the 2015 World Series of Poker Europe for $600,000. As for Affleck, he's still an active and well-regarded pro, but since that rivered straight, he's mostly played smaller tournaments and has never topped the half-million-dollar prize he received for finishing 15th in that 2010 main event. To date, Affleck has about $3 million in lifetime live tournament winnings. Duhamel has $18 million. Why? Well, because the river was an eight. That's an extreme example of the role variance can play in a poker player's career. 
Tournaments, in particular, are sites of extreme variance. The players who finish first, second, or third in high buy-in tournaments win massive amounts of money, and players who finish even a few spots down the ladder receive small fractions of what the big winners get. The difference between a tournament result that's merely good and one that's life-changing can frequently be one turn of a card. So it genuinely is possible for amateur players to win big money, as past main event champs like Chris Moneymaker, Jamie Gold, and Kui Win have. So, if amateurs can win big, and professionals can go on frustrating losing streaks, how do we know who's an amateur and who's a professional? And if you play poker, how do you know how good you are or aren't? Tournaments take a long, long time to tell you who's good and who isn't. Unlike in cash games, a lot of the action takes place either before the flop or on the flop, which means outcomes in important hands are far more based on luck. Also, chips have no dollar value, and access to prizes depends on how long you last, with a steep upward curve in payouts that only the highest finishers will reach. So the actual money you make depends on not just one or two successive fortuitous events, but, in some cases, on a whole series that have to come right in a row. So there's a ton of luck in tournaments. There's also plenty of room for skill, especially in events where the blinds increase slowly. But on the live circuit, it's extremely hard to tell how profitable you are. There's often a canyon separating a player's reputation from his or her actual ability. I've shared the table with a number of big-name players who turned out to be awful. I've also tangled with a number of players no one has ever heard of who were excellent. So, with all this in mind, let's discuss tournament economics. Before I begin, I'd like to shout out Rob Stan's podcast, The Grind, which was the first I'd heard to call out some of the absurdities in the tournament marketplace. A couple of my observations will mirror his. First, the travel. Cash game pros don't need to travel much. If you live in a city that has games big enough to sustain you, it's likely those games will continue to exist for months or years into the future, so you can just stay at home and play those games. If you're a live tournament player, it's hard to make much money on the $60 or $100 events that are available in most casinos on a day-to-day basis. You can play online, but the real money is in live tournaments. So you've got to move around going from city to city to play $400 or $1,000 or $5,000 events. You might be able to stop in one place for a couple weeks to play several events in a series, and you can stay in Las Vegas for maybe two straight months in the summer. But for the most part, it's an itinerant lifestyle. Combine that lifestyle with massive tournament variance, and you can see the problem. Let's say you're a tournament pro, and you're considering stopping in a city five or six hours away for two weeks to play, say, $20,000 worth of tournament buy-ins. Well, what's the expected value of that trip? Unless you've played thousands of tournaments, perhaps by multi-tabling online, it's hard to have a precise idea. And even if you knew that, over time, your return on investment would be, say, 50%, or $10,000 in this case, the median value of any individual trip would actually still be negative for most players, since a high percentage of a tournament player's earnings come from those rare times she finishes in the top few places. So you're frequently just going to lose money. And that's before considering travel costs. In addition to paying rent in whatever city you live in, you have to pay for lodging and gas or airfare to wherever you're traveling. So you frequently lose at poker when traveling to play tournaments, and then you lose again by accumulating travel expenses. 
You can burn through your money quickly if you have some bad luck, or you like expensive hotels, or if you're just not as good as you think you are. Many tournament pros can win, despite these obstacles. Some of them got lucky with a big score in a single event and can use that money to follow the tournament circuit for a couple of years. Others genuinely are that much better than the competition. As for the rest, a group that includes a number of players you've heard of, well, a lot of them probably just have their own money that didn't come from playing poker. At a cash game recently, I sat next to a player I'd only previously seen in tournaments. I said, hey man, I didn't realize you played cash. He said he'd been having a rough time on the tournament scene. I thought I remembered him having a six-figure score. He said he had two years before. He'd traveled to play in tournaments with buy-ins of up to $5,000 since then, and it hadn't worked out. He hadn't made money from poker in two years, and now he was returning to cash games. I respected that he told me all this and wasn't trying to hide it. What happened to him is common, but no one really talks about it. Not everyone who plays big tournaments is thriving. Many are just hanging on. And many of those who aren't hanging on by a thread are mostly playing with other people's money. The tournament economy is propelled by something called markup. Many tournament pros sell portions of their winnings in exchange for markup, which is what they charge investors to compensate for their time, travel costs, and supposed skill edge. So, for example, in a $10,000 tournament, a player might sell at 1.4. That means, essentially, that you can buy 10% of their winnings for $1,400. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. As I mentioned earlier, tournament variance is intense, and backing might help a struggling but talented pro get back on his feet. It might also help someone play an event they legitimately are profitable in, but that might be too risky for them to play entirely on their own money. Personally, I've sought backing in single events I think twice in my life, and I sold a package to investors for a couple weeks of tournaments in this year's World Series of Poker. I think the deal I offered investors was very good for them, but I don't know, and none of us without a massive live tournament sample know for sure. What if we're just delusional? I ask because I've seen tweets or otherwise heard about people I've played many, many hours with selling tournament packages I'll charitably describe as ambitious. I've been at the table with other players for hours in given tournaments, then looked them up on Twitter and couldn't believe what I saw them selling for. The main event in particular gets thousands of entries and has a $10,000 buy-in. Without people buying action, much of the middle class of players in that tournament, the lower or mid-tier pros, along with many serious recreational players, wouldn't play. Many players do sell action at rates that are fair, and in my experience, many backers just want to have some skin in the game and aren't too worried about being overcharged. But many players sell at prices that are delusional or downright dishonest. And here's the thing, there's no definitive way to verify that they're not worth what they say they are. The Hendon Mob website lists the career winnings of all players in recorded live tournaments. That's where you go when you want to get a sense of a player's tournament background. But it doesn't measure buy-ins, just winnings. It might say a player has $500,000 in winnings, 
but there's no way to tell if they've had $200,000 in buy-ins, in which case they've been quite profitable, or a million, in which case they're probably a huge fish. Hendon also doesn't record many online results or results in smaller events. And even if you knew for sure what a player's results, winnings minus losses, had been, he might still be much better or worse than his results because there's such incredible variance in tournaments. When you make it through a day of the main event, the players who will be at your table the following day are posted on the World Series of Poker's website, so you can do a little research on them before you get to the table. This year, when I did that research, I encountered one player with very few recorded tournament results who turned out to be very good, along with several with extensive tournament resumes who I thought were average players or worse. There's a correlation between having a record of tournament success and actually being good at tournaments, but it isn't a strong one. All this means that the tournament marketplace and the tournament scene in general are filled with all kinds of glory chasers and hangers-on. In tournaments, less skilled players really do occasionally win huge amounts. Sometimes those weaker players win that money and convince themselves and others they're actually good and hang around the tournament scene for years losing money. And sometimes players without much going on in their lives hang on, propelled by markup, hoping for that big score. And then there's the larger population of recreational players who are just playing for themselves and also hoping for a huge payday. All these groups make tournament fields very juicy for the much smaller group of players who are actually profitable, and who, it should be noted, also sell action sometimes, at least for the bigger events they play. It's just that it's really hard to tell who those players are and what prices are fair, and there are a lot of people out there charging prices that aren't, regardless of what they tell others or themselves. The tournament scene is filled with sad stories, many of which you'll only hear parts of. I've known tournament players who get buried in makeup. That's a different term than markup. Makeup means essentially the amount in lost tournament buy-ins a player has to recoup for their backer before they can start making money again. So, for example, a player might win $10,000 in a tournament, and her backer might pay her an agreed-upon percentage. But then if she loses her next $10,000 in buy-ins, she has $10,000 in makeup, and she's got to make that $10,000 back before seeing another payday. Sometimes these players quit or find work. I've known other tournament players who've never gotten that big score despite thousands of hours spent playing the game. Some of them only work part-time or haven't gone to college, and after years spent playing poker, it's like they're still waiting for their lives to start. I've known a couple who've traveled the tournament circuit for years and have considerable expenses and they're broke. Given the top-heavy distribution of prize pools in tournaments, some of these players might never get their chance at a big score. And with the number of eggs they've put in their poker baskets, it's fair to wonder how well they'd play if they finally did get that chance. A lot of these players I'm thinking of are good at poker, or certain aspects of poker. But they probably don't study enough, or don't study the right things, or really understand where their strengths lie. Some of that is probably laziness, but a bigger part of it is that they just aren't getting the messages they need to get from their tournament results. The next big score, or first big score, always seems to be right around the corner. I think some of these players are deluding themselves, but I can't prove it. And here's the thing. I truly believe I'm profitable in live tournaments with buy-ins below, say, a couple thousand dollars. But I wouldn't really have a great answer to someone who wanted to turn around a lot of what I've just said on me. There's so much uncertainty about how one makes money in tournaments that I can't prove conclusively that I'm not delusional about my own tournament chances. 
I played thousands of tournaments online from 2009 through 2014 or so and had a good return on investment in them. So I'm sure I was profitable then. But now I mostly just play cash games. I fired only about 20 live tournaments in the past year before heading to Las Vegas this summer and even fewer the year before that. So am I efficient tournaments? I doubt it, but I can't prove that I'm not. So enough about playing tournaments, let's discuss a recent live cash game session. I just got back from playing some 5-10-20, and that is a big game. 5-10-20 is not a stake that's unfamiliar to me. In a typical month, I might sit in a 5-10-20 game five to eight times, um, particularly if I'm, I'm regularly playing in a casino where that game is running, and it looks good. If it looks good, I will typically hop in there but it's a big game and without going into too much detail about my finances a good month that is pretty reasonably attainable for me is between 10 and $15,000 or so in profit so in a 5-10-20 session you can easily win or lose 5k or more so you can see how within my financial parameters how you do in your 5-10-20 sessions can go a long way toward determining whether your month is good or not. So I really want these sessions to go well. When I'm in these games, I, I take pride in doing what needs to be done regardless of whether it is uh, financially safe in that moment. So if I, have to make, if I have to make a light call or have to bluff all in, I'll do it and sometimes I'll lose, but it's important to have those, those big moves because if you don't, the players in 5, 10, 20 are good and they will exploit you. So you just have to take some variance. I picked this particular game because it was advertised as a meetup game involving Andrew Nimi and Brad Owen. Uh, I did get to play with Andrew a little bit, uh, did not play with Brad, and I sort of thought that because they were involved, there would be lots of people in the pool who are not usually in the 5-10-20 pool, people who are uh, shot-taking and people who typically play lower stakes or maybe even don't play that much live poker. That's not really the way it turned out. I would say that a lot of the player pool was pretty tough. I also showed up several hours before the Andrew and Brad portion of the day began. And so I was in uh, a main game with several other pros and I elected not to leave even after several other tables cropped up because at least some of those tables were playing just as 510, not as 510-20. So I thought I would stick it out in my game, which was playing as 510-20 and uh, hope that things turned around, but they never really did. There were a lot of tough players at the tables, uh, some I'd never seen before. So I was probably around break even or maybe winning a little bit for uh, several hours. Um, there was one hand where 
in this hand, there's there's the five, the ten, the twenty out there. Then there was also a ten before the five, which is a, a weird rule this casino has that allows uh, someone to buy the the button under certain circumstances. So the blinds for this hand are ten, five, ten, twenty. Super weird. Four blinds. And I had pocket nines in the cutoff and raised to $75. The button called, and the guy who was the first 10, um, who is a regular who I play with a lot and who's a friend of mine, raised to $350, folded back to me. I called, and the button also called. So already there's almost $1,100 in the pot, and the flop comes 866, which is one of the better flops for me that doesn't have a nine on it. And fortunately, my aggressive friend checks, and I bet 375, figuring um, my friend is, is likely to bet small with a lot of overpairs, and that the player on the button might have something better than me, could certainly have pocket 10s or pocket 8s, but that my hand benefited so much from uh, just taking the pot down here that a small bet was warranted. So I bet 375 and they both folded. And that sounds like a not very significant pot. I mean, it's not a very significant pot, but you can see that if I put that $375 out there and then I don't take that pot down and don't win, that's already a swing of almost $1,500. So this is a big game. Later, I raise from the cutoff with Queen Jack offsuit and get a call from the small blind who appears to be a recreational player who is, who's come for uh, Andrew and Brad. So there's $150 in the pot. I have queen jack offsuit and it comes king, king, jack. And he checks and I check. The turn is a third king. So king, king, jack, king. He checks. I bet $90 and now he raises to $200. And already alarm bells are are kind of going off but i don't think i can really fold um a full house or not a full house this good at this point in the hand so i call the river is a blank and he bets 300 and i'm i'm just thinking okay i mean maybe he has a jack here and has the same hand i do kings full of jacks but i think it's just very very likely that somehow he has quads based on this player type. So I fold and I show the jack and he doesn't show, but later says that he had king eight suited. So who knows? I mean, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but uh, either way, I think it's a bet I don't have to pay off. So I was pretty close to break even, something like six or seven hours into the session when I finally caught a little bit of good luck. In the first significant hand I played, um, I raised in the cutoff with to $60 with ace queen of clubs. The small blind who had recently turned 21 and obviously hadn't had much experience playing poker and casinos, but who seemed like a pretty good player raised to $255. And I called. So there was $535 in the pot heading to the flop, which was Jack 10 deuce with the Jack of hearts and the 10 and deuce of spades. He bet 175, which is a sizing that a lot of good players will use in this kind of spot. And it's, it's already a, a pretty annoying spot. And, uh, I'm already sort of a little tilted in my head because I know that I'm going to have to call this bet. I've got two overs. I've got ace high and I have a gut shot straight draw to the nuts 
which is to say the best possible hand, which would come in if the next card were to be a king that is not a spade. So I can't give up to this small sizing, but in my head I'm thinking, you know, and this is this is total fish thinking, but uh, this is what I was was going with was, you know, I, I've I've had like a pretty frustrating couple of months in some respects. I've been in so many pots where I've had draws and not just any draws, but like way better draws than this one. Draws where I have two overs and a straight and a flush draw and everything bricks. And I, I put in tons of money and everything bricks and I'm just never hitting these draws. So why am I putting this $175 out there? Why am I giving this guy this $175? So I call the bet. And the turn is the king of hearts. Boom. So I have the ace high straight. And my first reaction is like, whoa, I can't believe that happened. And I'm pretty sure my my eyes bulged out of my head a little bit. Like I'm pretty sure I gave off some sort of physical information there. But my opponent fortunately didn't notice if I did give anything off. And he bet $525. So we both had around $2,300. So I went ahead and went all in. There are two flush draws out there. I don't have any of the flush draws. The cards I have in my hand don't prevent him from having any number of super strong hands like pocket kings or pocket jacks and and so on. So yeah, I ship it. He thinks for a few seconds and calls. And I ask if he wants to run it twice. He says no. The river is the seven of spades, which is a little bit worrisome. But I table my hand and it's good. He claims to have had pocket tens, which of course makes a lot of sense. So it is really nice to bank a gut shot in a three bet pot. So I end up winning a pot of close to six grand. Then a bit later, uh, the, my, uh, another table breaks and I'm thinking, cool, this table's finally going to get a little bit better, but it didn't. Fortunately, I continued to run well. So in this hand, I opened a 60 on the button with ace four of spades. The small blind, who's one of the new guys and who appears to be a good aggressive player, raises to $250. So it folds back to me and ace five suited, ace four suited from these positions are hands I will get a little bit of out of line with. So I re-raise to $650 and he calls. And the flop comes ace, eight, four with two diamonds. So I flop top and bottom pair, which again is awesome. I, I put in $1,300 into this pot and um, just boom, smash uh, two pair on the flop. He checks. I bet $500. This is maybe a little bit bigger than I should be betting, but I think there's so much ace X I can get value from on a board like this. And I want to size in such a way that I can set up um, a shove on potential favorable runouts. So I bet $500 and he calls the turn is the three of hearts. So now there are two diamonds and two hearts on board. Again, I have ACE four of spades and the board is ACE eight, four, three with two diamonds and two hearts. He checks and I bet 1300 and he folds. So I play for maybe another half hour after that. Um, the game is honestly not that great of a game and I end up racking up and winning about 4,000 bucks for the day. So great day. And, you know, we're talking about variance in this episode. Cash games are generally not the, you know, no limit hold'em cash games are generally not the most high variance form of poker you can play. 
But when you play games that are big for you and you do well or you do really poorly, that's variance. And uh, I caught some some good variance today. I know I'm profitable in live cash games. Unlike tournaments, cash games aren't glamorous. With the exception of a few players at the very top of the food chain, no one outside poker knows who cash players are unless they've done well in tournaments. Cash games mostly happen in the shadows. In cash games, you play with chips that represent money. A $5 chip is worth $5. In most cases, there are minimum and maximum buy-ins for each player, say, between 60 big blinds at the low end and 100 or 200 at the high end. Strategically, the best cash game players tend to be better than tournament players at playing after the flop. Since almost every hand begins with all the participants having lots of big blinds, there tend to be more frequent big decisions on later betting rounds. The more rounds of betting, and the more community cards that have been revealed, the harder the decisions get. So if you're a lesser player, your weaknesses will eventually come back to bite you. In cash games, the cream tends to rise fairly quickly. That, along with the constant availability of cash games, is why most professional players tend to play them at least some of the time. In cash games, everyone goes through annoying stretches of bad luck. But if you play well, these stretches can be overcome with relative ease. Especially in lower stakes games, the differences in ability are large, and the best players can fight through their bad spells within, say, a month or so. But the devil's in the details. Lots of lower stakes games have high rake which means the casino takes a relatively large percentage of each pot. Over time, the rate can be difficult to overcome, even if you're one of the better players. There are higher variance game types, such as Pot Limit Omaha, which can make good and bad stretches longer than they might be in other games. Tougher games are much higher variance, so high-stakes players endure bigger swings. And even if you're in relatively small games with low rake, it's hard to know precisely how good you are at any given time. Poker games constantly get tougher, and a player who's beating the game one year might not still be winning the next year. And of course, maybe you're in a downswing in part because you're not playing as well as you used to, or because an initial run of bad luck caused you to make bad decisions that led to more bad results. The uncertainty that accompanies variance is one of the toughest things about poker. You might be pretty sure you're better than the competition, but it's hard to know how much better, or whether you'll be able to win at the rate you once did. This year, I've won in 58% of my live cash game sessions. That's good, especially since my wins tend to be bigger than my losses. And I try to balance my higher variance sessions in big games like 5, 10, 20 with lower variance sessions in smaller games like 2, 5. But I've had long stretches of losing sessions and one downswing in the five figures. Even if you know intellectually that you're winning over time, it's hard to feel that way when you're struggling. You try to keep your head down and trust the process but it's hard. Some months I make many times my monthly expenses, but sometimes I have entire months where I lose. When I started playing full-time and didn't have other significant income streams, I felt like everything was riding on my poker ability, and it was especially hard to deal with downswings. When you're struggling, self-doubt can creep in, which just makes things harder. It can also impact your willingness to spend money, which is irritating. You'll find yourself fretting about paying $12 for a movie ticket hours after giving up a thousand on a hero call gone wrong. Of course, that isn't rational. 
Poker is a long-term game, and you're exchanging hundreds or thousands of dollars a day at the table. If you really are winning over time, and if you have a big enough bankroll, you don't need to sweat an extra dollar here or there more in lean times than in plentiful ones. But while you might know intellectually that that's true, you don't necessarily feel it. Psychologically, poker can be tough to take, and that's even true in cash games, where you can go long stretches in which you make good decisions and get punished for them. For all that, though, cash games can be a consistent source of income. With some exceptions, cash game pros at higher stakes tend to be even-keeled. They're confident in their abilities and confident that those abilities will translate to dollars won over time. They also tend not to be chasing the glory that can accompany a big tournament win. So for me, and for most other pros who haven't already set themselves up financially, cash games are the best way to make money and avoid going broke. They can be a path to a consistent, stable life. In episode 4 of Third Man Walking, we'll see what that life can look like as we examine what it means to be a pro. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking and via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.